Modern medicine is advancing at faster speeds than ever before. Yet the world still sees the healthcare experience as difficult and dated. The Real Chemistry podcast shares interviews with industry leaders who are innovating in healthcare. Join Real Chemistry's Chief Marketing Officer, Aaron Strout, as he explores how AI and ideas can come together to transform healthcare into what it should be. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, Chief Marketing Officer of Real Chemistry and host of the Real Chemistry podcast. And today I had an opportunity to speak to yet another amazing person, an amazing guest. Her name is Donna Cryer. She's a JD, Juris Doctor, and she is also the founder, president, and chief executive officer of the Global Liver Institute. Donna is a podcaster. We'll talk a little bit about that during this. She's a regular speaker, advocate, and just doing amazing work and, and really bringing light to an important topic, and that is liver disease. You know, During the conversation, we talk a little bit about GLI, the, the institute, talk about how she gets started, uh, the time that she spent as a member of the White House Task Force on eHealth Equity. Uh, we talk a little bit about the importance of patient-centeredness and patient engagement and what's happening, a little bit about the One Liver to Love initiative, uh, where the future is in the liver health space. And then she has two very clever answers to my favorite questions always, which are the One Wish and the, the Deserted Island. So I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So thank you and uh, buckle up and take a listen. All right, Donna. Well, I'm excited to do this today. And I'll preface that by saying part of why I'm so excited is your reputation precedes you. And I mean that in the most beneficial or positive way. Um, we have uh, some mutual friends, Shauna Butler and Jane Sarenson Khan, who I love to death. And I know that they are good friends of yours and, and sing your praises. I think our companies have worked together before, or organizations, I should say. So um, always nice when you can have this synergy. And it's funny just for the listeners. Uh, the reason I connected with Donna was because I was looking for a moderator for a panel in DC and asked Jane and Shauna, and they both came up with your name. You were not able to do it, but I was like, we've got to get a podcast on the book. So I'm really excited to be chatting with you today. Thank you, Aaron. Um, it is uh, great to be known by great friends. So uh, Shauna and Jane are both people I uh, absolutely admire. And yes, if I had not been uh, gallivanting around the UK on the uh, Beyonce slash Harry Styles tour with my granddaughter, I would have loved to have moderated your event. Okay. Well, first of all, for anyone that uh, can't see this, which will be most of you, the fact that you're telling me you have a granddaughter is somewhat uh, crazy because you definitely do not look like you're old enough to have a granddaughter. I know we're probably not supposed to say these things these days, but it's meant as a compliment. Um, I do want to start with your origin story, right? This is where I love to start with all the guests. I like to find out how they got into healthcare. I think people do the math pretty quickly once we get started. But one of the things that I discovered about you in doing my research is that you are a liver uh, transplant survivor. And I think 28 years, at least according to your website, let's talk about the journey from being diagnosed and going through that experience to then becoming the founder and CEO of the Global Liver Institute back in 2014. Yes. So the website is accurate. So that is very good to know. Um, kudos to my team. Um, 28 years and counting is what I always say. And uh, I am blessed that uh, be, having been transplanted in the very earliest days, really, of the field, um, that I am sort of re- defining what survivorship looks like in transplantation with every birthday 
that I have. And so it was absolutely not a straight line from my transplant to building my own advocacy organization. But I think in many ways, the skills that I developed um, in the intermittent 20 years uh, have all played a part in why uh, GLI is you know, thriving and soon, soon to hit its 10th birthday. And, and those skills are around, um, I, I did go back and finish law school after my transplant and uh, went uh, shortly into the Justice Department in the Criminal Division, which at that point had been my, my dream job. So I'm an advocate by nature um, as well as by training. But I had the opportunity to go and do organ transplant policy and be part of a federal affairs team. And so I did that for a number of years and have stayed in healthcare ever since in a, in a variety of roles in, in public relations and clinical trial recruitment and in consulting. And that I think is why uh, the Global Liver Institute, um, which I started um, really on the 20th anniversary of my transplant, being mindful that other patients might not have access to the same level of care that saved my life and, and sustains me today. You know, GLI sometimes comes across as, uh, is it is a consulting firm, is it a communications firm? Because it, it you know, reads from my, from my DNA and, and from all of the career experiences that I've had. Well, I'm sorry that you had to go through that, but the world is better for you having done that and the advocacy that you created. And so one of the things I want to dive into, because I was a little surprised about this, is one of the other stats that you've got uh, on your website is right up front and center, that the gaps in liver health advocacy have resulted in one and a half billion people, that's with a B, living with liver diseases, most of whom are undiagnosed, undertreated, and overstigmatized. So let's talk a little bit about today what GLI is doing to address these issues. Are you okay, by the way, by me referring to it as GLI? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So I think just having someone in the position that you are in the midst of communications who was unaware of that fact and who's now aware of that fact is a success for me. So I'm just going to go and take a nap after this. Good. Um, <laughs> no, but our job but is really, done. <laughs> our job is done. No, but, but, but really, um, you know, and I've had, uh, you know, I have uh, several great friends in, you know, healthcare communication, some who have written, you know, books on it, and they weren't aware of that. They worked on huge instrumentals, social um, health campaigns, and that fact always amazes them. But when you think about it, everyone who has a liver, which is everyone except for some of us at short periods of time, um, is at risk of one or more liver diseases. And there are more than 100 types of liver disease. And so whether those are autoimmune liver diseases um, that affect children, viral uh, hepatitis uh, that is endemic around, around the world, um, or newer uh, or more trending uh, conditions like fatty liver disease or NASH, and we'll be celebrating International NASH Day uh, very, very soon. It's surprising that more people don't have more liver diseases because the liver is such a central organ to so many processes around creating energy and hormones and and modulating your, your sugar and everything. So the fact is that if only that many people have have liver disease, we, we've, we've done something right, And but we need to work in all areas from prevention to treatment to make sure that most more people don't end up like I did in end-stage liver disease in an ICU needing a transplant and being told I only had seven days to live. If we can back up from that and deal with it when it's a problem of vaccination or cures like we have for hepatitis C 
or structured nutrition or alcohol education um, or labeling of, of acetaminophen, then we will have saved so many lives. And so our first and foremost job is really just getting in the conversation, getting liver in the conversation, because people won't work on solutions or invest in anything if we're not even part of the conversation, part of the dialogue. And so that is our, our number one job. Well, I appreciate that. And I want to drill down on that a little bit. And there was something that was in your mission statement that was intriguing to me, right? So just for those that are not familiar, that your organization focuses on improving the lives of individuals and families impacted by liver disease through promoting innovation, encouraging collaboration, and scaling optimal approaches to help eradicate liver diseases. So I loved those first two nouns, the innovation part and the collaboration part. Can we talk about those and like, what does that mean to GLI and how do you live that, that mission? Sure. And so we didn't just, you know, pull things down from the big book of jargon, um, <laughs> business jargon to use. We really hit our stride when we organized around our, our councils. So in some ways, the collaboration was the innovation, at least in the liver space, so we have councils in liver cancer, in fatty liver disease or NASH and pediatric and rare liver diseases that for the first time invite a lot of organizations into the conversation around liver. So when you think of our NASH council, which has 80 plus members from the American Heart Association to endocrinology groups to the American College of Sports Medicine, most of those had never had liver conversations, not at their annual meetings or in their newsletters or as part of their strategic plan. And now they do. And so some of the innovation is just having the cross-pollination and collaboration and in the injection of liver as a case study or a topic for consideration in all these other parts of healthcare where it had been so siloed before. And I, and I think that silo has been... Uh, you know, part of the of the issue of of why there hasn't been more success, even when you you know dare I say cure things as we've been able to do in our field, where many fields have never had that, um, and yet we don't get those cures to people, and we don't have the attention and celebrities and all the different things that other other conditions do, and so I think that in some ways. The collaboration is the largest innovation. And from that has come more investment. So we see people coming from pulmonary fibrosis, and lung diseases, for example, into liver disease because they are quite scientifically similar, but there just really wasn't the excitement um, and the community built around there. Or when you have liver cancer now being part of different cancer conversations where they weren't before. And so being able to leverage all of that oncology infrastructure, whether at the policy level or at the health system level for liver cancer patients in ways that they weren't before, that allows a lot of innovation to now to now happen because you have a lot of different uh, types of people and stakeholders and professionals from from nurses to physicians to researchers to medical students, all starting to think about, well, maybe I'll answer a question in liver, whereas they might have answered a question in breast or heart disease or something. And there's nothing wrong with that. We don't want to take anything away from that. But we see the intersections that can come from 
from those uh, interactions. And I think that has created the, the circumstances for more innovation to flourish. One of the things that I wanted to sort of uh, include in your questions that I neglected, but I'm going to ask now because you brought it up, was uh, I think today, literally, which by the time people listen, will be a week in the rearview mirror or a few days Mm -hmm. in the rearview mirror, um, was ASCO, right? It's the largest oncology meeting, I think, in the world, and it took place in Chicago. Uh, Anything or any items that came out of or findings that came out of ASCO this year that you were you know, particularly interested in, I don't want to put you on the spot because <laughs> you may have been planning to catch up after the fact, but I thought I would at least ask. No, our, our, our liver cancers director is, um, is all over ASCO and, uh, we have wall to wall meetings and we've been so excited to see more and more innovation in the liver cancer space, whether that's immuno-oncology or on the diagnostic side, um, we're involved in multi-cancer screening initiatives, which I think are really, really exciting to be able to detect liver, GI, and other cancers with a single test, um, I think is one of the most exciting things that we're involved in. We have helped um, with the National Cancer Institute creating special programs of research excellence in liver cancer. So institutions like Mayo and MD Anderson now have formal liver cancer research programs um, in partnership with the National Cancer Institute that they didn't have uh, before us. And so we were excited by all the different things we've been able to catalyze in in liver cancers that are happening now at ASCO and, and uh, hopefully making more of an impression at GI ASCO as well. Well, thank you for uh, fielding that question. Like I said, I apologize for not <laughs> teeing that up earlier, but okay. uh, I, I suspected it was something that was in your wheelhouse I do want to walk back a little bit in history and then we'll come back to mm-hmm. sort of modern times again. But one of the things I was intrigued by is, and I think it's part of what makes you such a big deal. Um, in 2013, you were asked to serve as a member of the White House Task Force on eHealth Equity. I guess, first of all, I'd love to know what the eHealth means. And then my other question is 10 years later, have we made much progress? Yeah, so I was delighted to participate in that. Um, long ago and far away, I was a GAO appointee to the HIT Policy Committee advising uh, the Office of the National Coordinator on Health Information Technology. When EHRs were first starting to just be put into place, we were thinking about opening up these things called patient portals. So, you know, very early on um, in the era. And so, you know, eHealth, and I, and I feel like my, I have an e-patient t-shirt that I feel like I saved it when I you know moved into this office. I think this is going to be worth something someday. What was an e-patient? Because it stood for more than just electronic, but it was empowered and educated and, and all these different things. And so I think the e-health part has definitely advanced. You know, when I think about all the information that I exchange can exchange in relative uh, privacy and security on, on my on my iPhone. We have definitely advanced. When I uh, went to the doctor for these horrible allergies that I have, so for everybody, forgive my voice. Um, and all of my records going all the way back to, as the kids call it these days, late 1900s, uh, <laughs> when I had my transplant, were together and one trend line. So my doctor was able to say, Oh, you have never, ever had allergies before with some great comments. You have never been prescribed an antibiotic for anything. And so We've definitely advanced on the e-health part. On the equity part, we have a long way to go. A key story, an example, I would say, is my mother 
uh, and I go into a pharmacy and she wanted to get a vaccine, COVID vaccine. And, uh, you know, she has insurance. She had her, you know, she had her earlier vaccine card. She wanted to get a booster. She had an earlier vaccine card. She had her insurance card. She had all the things that she thought she needed to have. And, uh, and they were like, no, you need to make an appointment on the app. And, you know, she about lost. And I was like, it's okay. It's okay. We're going to go sit in this corner and I'm going to use all of my medical legal years of experience, my e-patient HIT, and we're going to get you an appointment. And while I was doing that, patient after patient, uh, mostly black, brown, and Asian seniors were turned away. And I asked the pharmacist, how often did that happen? And she said, oh, all day long, because they couldn't get on the app. And so uh, the distance between their desire to have a vaccine and their getting the vaccine was a digital divide. And so one of the ways uh, that we address that as an organization, as GLI, is recognizing that any of our community ambassadors that we train in our Dance Advocacy Academy, which we have every fall, need to have digital skills to be able to sign people into their portals or into a pharmacy app to get their vaccines. And that part of being uh, you know, a peer mentor and supporting someone in their health is supporting their digital health in, in communities. Well, that's an eye-opening story. And I guess, you know, thinking about it, um, I'm a pretty technology savvy person. And I will say it was not the easiest thing in the world for me to make those appointments. And I can imagine that, you know, that doesn't help when you have the barrier of, you know, this is the only way you can do it versus being able to walk up or write your name down or even call, right? Because I remember it was also impossible to get in touch with anyone. I do want to talk a little bit about some of your other skills. So um, I think if people don't know, you're a podcaster. So it's been fun having you on the other side of the the uh, screen. But the one that I do also want to talk about, and I'm guessing this is how you originally connected with Jane and Shauna, and that was that you do speak frequently and you focus on the topics of things like patient-centeredness and patient engagement in healthcare transformation. So beyond the obvious, let's talk a little bit about what some of the key areas of focus are when you're giving these types of talks. Well, I think at this point, it's thankfully uh, giving examples from my life of the different roles that I have been able to bring my lived experience um, as a person with various conditions um, to the benefit of of healthcare change, whether that's uh, in a regulatory aspect of the Food and Drug Administration or on the board of the hospital now or in, you know, several other committees. Um, for roles that didn't exist before um, for people with lived conditions. And so, you know, before um, we were just, you know, painting a picture or a vision of what could happen and trying to persuade people that involving real patients wouldn't just, you know, stink up the joint, um, that it wouldn't just make everything come to a, a crashing, crumbling halt. And so, Now it really is about um, not putting the expectation or the role for the for patient voices and patient perspectives and patient experiences in all of these places. It is measuring the impact. Um, It's both, you know, training more patients with more skills um, to be able to be productive in these roles because nobody's just warming a seat here. Um, You have to make an impact. And so how can people be productive and effective and persuasive with people of other training 
Uh, many people who are not trained to work with patients as peers, this is still sort of new for them. So how do you bring them along? And so that is part of it, part of our responsibility, I feel, to, to train people, make people available for all of these new roles. And it's insisting on accountability, that something needs to change. That's the best definition of patient engagement that I've ever heard. Um, it was by a patient I, I was working with at Academy Health. And she said, it's not patient engagement if nothing changes. And so, you know, companies that have as part of their business model, part of their operating procedures to demonstrate at different points, how has patient input changed this product or protocol or what have you? So people know it, it is a real core part of the business, a, a reality, a need to do, not a nice to do, not the trend of the day or the year. That's that's where we are now. Well, I love that saying patience as peers. And I also love that idea that, you know, if things don't change, then, you know, what what good is it? Right. So it's an it's you can pay lip service to it. You can put people, uh, you know, brown skinned people or Latino on a brochure. But, right. you know, really digging in and sitting there and listening to them and listening to their stories can be such a, a meaningful change. One of the things I want to go back to that you had mentioned earlier, the collaboration piece, Um doing some additional research, you have this campaign called One Liver to Love, which I believe launched last year. And in this uh, initiative, you partner with um, ASI and Blue Fairy. I think I'm saying those correctly. If I'm not, I apologize. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about sort of what that initiative was about and, you know, what that collaboration meant to, to work with those two organizations. I really am grateful for that partnership, um, both with our sister advocacy organization. So, one, that's an instance of being a good nonprofit citizen, of being able to work with other organizations. Um, sometime in my consulting, I was in the role of trying to make everybody play nice together in a space. And so um, sharing the space and the input with Blue Fairy has been has been a pleasure. And then the other was our you know, pharma partner in the liver cancer space in ASI um, recognized that it wasn't just their, their their dollars that we value as investment in our advocacy, but they had other resources in, in communications and in celebrity um, that really could help um, amplify the message that we were all trying to create. And so I really applaud them for having working. We work together as a team from the very concept of the idea for the language of the idea um, the, you know, the pillars of it and the imagery. And so it is now something that they are continuing to sustain because they see that reaction. And I think that reaction is because um, they took the patient input really seriously, even when at some points it made that the, like the plans, the original agency plans didn't quite, um, you know, make it, make it through when we talked about how people would react to it. But now it it sticks and it resonates. Um, and so it's been a wonderful campaign, uh, one that certainly my my father, who brought me up on New York Yankees box scores, would certainly approve of. Uh, so well, great segue, and I appreciate you not completely stealing <laughs> the thunder, but a nice setup to the fact that Bernie Williams, who was a you know I'm a Red Sox fan, so we'll have to agree to disagree on that front, but he was a great player a stand-up guy as far as I could tell. And so he was involved and I would love to know how much did that help the effort? We find we have a group called Star Power Inside Real Chemistry that, you know, brings celebrities, both the people that we know, actors, singers, you know, uh, sports figures, 
as well as celebrity patients, advocates, and doctors, nurses, et cetera. But um, talk a little bit about how Bernie and his involvement, you know, helped the campaign. Absolutely. And I want to talk to you more about star power too, uh, either uh, maybe afterwards. But, um, you know, one of the largest issues that we have um, in in liver disease is that it's so highly stigmatized. Um, too many people think all liver disease is caused by alcohol abuse, and that's not true. Um, too many people think that children don't get liver diseases, that's not true. Too many people think that um, they don't know anybody who's ever had a liver disease, and and that's not true. When we when we know that so many people have uh, have some type of liver disease, and so you know Bernie stepping up, standing up for us, um, for himself and his, his family um, experience, um, and sharing that with all of the communities um, that love or respect him. <laughs> um, whether that's in baseball or music or in Puerto Rico, um, it, it's just, it's so powerful. It, it, I, I can't overestimate what it means to people and families who has, have never had anybody of that stature stand with them. And so we hope it's just the beginning of, of more to come that, that uh, as, as uh, celebrities meet us, that, uh, that they recognize that the liver field is a safe, safe and wondrous place, um, that they should feel, uh, you know, no, no worries about their brand or reputation um, and being associated with that. Um, it just it, it means it means just everything to us. Well, I have to tell you, I get the chills when you mentioned that concept of standing with us like that's a very powerful thought and i think if no other reason right it's just why that it's it's such a an important combination right and and so it is great that you're able to do that we're proud of the fact that we are able to you know bring these people that are well recognized well respected and you know they help destigmatize so i hadn't even thought about that piece so that's that's a great point as we wind this down, I want to look out over the next few years, and you mentioned some of these when you talked about your excitement around ASCO, but on the liver health front, what are some things we should be looking forward to over the next half a decade? Well, I think that with um, the spread of knowledge that we have had um, and that we continue to have to primary care physicians, to nurses, um, and really breaking it out of our, our, our friends in hepatology, um, our lovely neighborhood hepatologists, but there just aren't enough of them. We have we launched a program last year called Liver Health is Public Health. And so um, we'll know that we will have been successful when deans of school of public health, um, when, you know, food programs and school programs and all the different levels of, of public health start talking about liver health. And we've made started to make a lot of progress. And that destigmatizes as well. And, and I think um, on, the, on the scientific side, um, we will definitely have a cure approved for NASH. Um, but we will make a lot of progress on the diagnostic side. You know, right now, one of our biggest problems across liver diseases is, is, is screening. And making that screening um, mobile so that you know, it works in Seattle and Senegal um, is is important um, so that, you know, the opportunities that we've now created on the innovative treatment side can be available to all the people who, who need them. So those are the things that I'm really excited about, both at, at, you know, two very different ends of the problem, 
both the you know public health and being at a different, more dispersed level of the conversation, and very specifically in 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 diagnostics, so that more people are are screened. And I think certainly everywhere in between will benefit as as well. But I think if we get those those two end rights, and people start really realizing how much is already going on in their communities and how easy it is to to plug into something then um you know the space will will you know will flourish for people and people will be healthier well it sounds like a bright future so fingers crossed that that comes to bear uh i'm sure as well connected and smart as you are that that absolutely <laughs> will be the case Last two questions I always like to make a little more personal, um, and this can go anywhere you want, but during the pandemic, I started asking if you had one wish, it could be whatever you want it to be, what would it be and why? Um, you know, uh, <laughs> it makes me think of like the Steve Martin skit on SNL. If I had one wish, all the little children in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I, I do live and breathe healthcare. And so I... I'll, I'll I'll lean into something for sort of specific and and digital, which only you know a person with multiple chronic conditions would ever ever wish for. But I, I wish there was you know something I could you know stand on or you know scan me every morning and really tell the you know the health of you know of different of different systems so that I could sort of fine tune myself um, and optimize you know my my health. So that's that's my geeky little geeky little wish. And, uh, you know, there's, there's world peace and, you know, and, and that my Yorkies, you know, live forever and things like that. But, um, I, I think in the, in the healthcare realm, I really love, I really love my, my data and the ability to, you know, to fine tune me, um, to keep me, uh, you know, going to see Beyonce's next door. <laughs> well, I love that one. And that's a, a unique one. And, um, it's interesting because there is a, a company called Open Water, and there's a woman named Mary Lou Jepson who you may have bumped into on the speaking circuit. Yeah. And so I saw her speak, I want to say it was four or five years ago at a techonomy conference. At the time, she was talking about MRI technology that essentially could be reduced into you know a beanie or a belt, mm-hmm. and it would deliver what you're saying. She's since pivoted some, and actually another uh, thing near and dear to my heart is you know looking to eradicate different types of cancer, like glioblastoma, who I've lost a few family members to. So, but I do feel like based on her initial assessment, I think she hit some headwinds. But it, there will be a day. So hopefully, in your and my lifetime, we will see that technology where we can scan ourselves every day and really look inside and make sure that we're as healthy as possible. So, final question before we wrap up, and this is definitely more fun, but it's to kind of get you know people to know who you are and and how you think. So you're stuck on a proverbial deserted island. You can take one album with you. Don't worry about how the technology works. Which album would you pick? I, I may I may cheat at this a little bit only because for my 40th birthday, I recorded uh, my own albums of my favorite songs from each decade, um, plus a gospel sub, special supplement. So I, I think I would have to take my gospel best of special supplement for my 40th birthday party with me. I, I still get people who walk up to me who are like that just stays in my car. And I listen to that all the time. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go with my special curated own album of my gospel favorites. So that's totally not cheating by the way, especially since <laughs> you created it. So it's not a greatest hits or whatever. Nope. 
Um, so I love that. And I love the fact Donna Cryer, right? It's like, you know, you just have that singer's name to it or musician's name. Um, but with that, I would like to thank you and wrap up. And, you know, as we mentioned at the top of the, the show, I've been talking to Donna Cryer, JD, Juris Doctor. So very impressive. Um, founder, president, and chief executive officer of the Global Liver Institute, podcaster, speaker, grandmother, and, you know, wonderful person in general. So thank you so much, Donna, for joining us today. Thank you, Aaron. Want more episodes of The Real Chemistry Podcast? Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We post a new episode every Thursday. Visit realchemistry.com for more info.